Diversity is not like an end goal, right? It's a continued conversation. 2020 has shown us very explicitly that the world is always changing. So we always have to kind of up our game and continue to reconceptualize and operationalize and manage diversity in the workplace. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr., In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. Today, we have an opportunity to chat with Dr. Sabrina Valpone. Dr. Valpone is an assistant professor in the Organizational Leadership Division at the University of Colorado Boulder's Leeds School of Business. She earned her PhD in Human Resource Management from the Fox School of Business at Temple University, and her research focuses on diversity management and identity management in organizations. Specifically, she uses both qualitative and quantitative methods to understand how organizations manage their diverse workforces and how diverse individuals flourish through the management of their identities at work. Her research has been published in peer-reviewed journals such as the Academy of Management Journal, Journal of Applied Psychology, Organizational Behavior, and Human Decision Processes, just to name a few. Today, we talk about diversity in the workplace, how implicit bias plays a role, the business case behind why diversity is a necessity. Sabrina, we are so excited to have you here this week. Um, You have this huge passion and background that we're going to get into focused around leadership dynamics, and you bring a lot to the table with your research and your uh, studies at the university. So we're going to dive into that a lot today. Uh, Can you just lay the groundwork and let us know how did this journey start for you? How did you even get onto this path of being so passionate um, about uh, helping leaders and leadership in general? That's a great question. I actually started thinking about these ideas of leadership from my own work experiences. And it literally started my first day in the workforce believe it or not, (laughs) I uh, started my work journey uh, at a restaurant, uh, Red Lobster particularly, and I noticed a lot of interesting dynamics about leadership, um, as I'm sure everyone does when they enter the, you know, organizational world. Um, And I noticed that Red Lobster in particular, or uh, their parent company at the time was Darden, they were getting a lot of awards for best place to work or best place for women to work. And they were on all these award lists that were very prominent and very influential. And in some cases, you know, my experiences with leaders there absolutely matched that. 
But I also noticed that um, in other cases, uh, particularly for leaders who were women, some of what was perceived um, by others of the organization didn't match my particular experiences of my female leaders. Um, and, And in some cases it did, but it just really got me on this journey of why do people enjoy a workplace when someone who looks very similar to them, that just doesn't work for them. Like, what is it that, you know, one female leader could walk into this organizational environment, be very successful, stay there for years, have this 20 year tenure in the workforce. And then another one walks in and is like, no way. And is out in three, you know, three months. Uh, It was very interesting to me to see these dynamics. And I tended to see those different experiences more in the female leaders that I personally had at this time point, compared to a majority of male leaders that I had at this particular organization in a particular location. Um, But what was interesting is so many of those male leaders had 20, 25, even 30 year tenures uh, with the restaurant and uh, with that organization. And it just really got me thinking like, you know, what kind of organization and environment do I want in my future career? And also why is there this discrepancy, especially when it has to do with gender uh, based on how people experience and perceive their workplace? Uh, And here we are today, uh, fast forward, I won't say how many years, (laughs) because then you can date me. Uh, But after a decade or two, just accumulating really the same exact research question. uh, When people walk into workplaces, what makes them feel comfortable? Uh, What is their experience? What are their perceptions of the leaders? If they're in leadership positions, how are they doing their job in a way that is inclusive? Uh, And I really, if you haven't really pieced it together yet, really focus on the lived experiences of Uh, group members that we would consider in minority populations, whether that's women leaders or uh, leaders or employees that identify as racial minorities, um, that really branches across a number of different types of diversities, whether it's uh, gender and sex, race and ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And so that's really the lens with which I approach uh, this idea of leadership and leadership experiences in the workplace. What, you know, we had uh, Dr. Stephanie Johnson on earlier, and we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, this topic. And I brought up and I made a little bit of a joke that, you know, the best team is a team of Rons, right? Uh, if you've, if you've been following the podcast, you've probably heard me say that. So why is it, Sabrina, that we, we gravitate toward, we want to hire somebody that's like us. Is, can you kind of unpack that? Why is that something that uh, we have to look out for? Uh, the research term, if you want to get fancy for a second, uh, we refer to that uh, as homosocial reproduction. I know that's kind of a long, fancy term, but uh, basically it's exactly what you said. Uh, we tend to reproduce or hire people uh, that are very similar to us. And some of the immediate cues that we have about others to judge whether they're similar to us or not are race and gender. 
Uh, and so what this actually does, if uh, you want to get into some more details, is and this is very uh, relevant to the research that I'm doing now, is these ideas of being attracted or um, or having more trust in or these people who per we perceive to be more similar to us, what that does is it creates um, this situation that we have in workplaces uh, that really exists around our implicit biases around leadership and also the prototypes that we have in our heads about what a leader is. Basically, a stream of my research uh, does tackle the idea that we have these implicit prototypes um, that lead to us reproducing or replicating these historic ideas of what a leader is or what a leader should look like. You know, it's no accident that if you look at all the pictures of, uh, you know, the presidents we've had of the United States, that you just basically see the same face over and over and over and over and over again, until maybe recently that was a little bit different. But we do tend to make decisions uh, cognitively about who would be good to hire into this leadership position. And also just instinctually um, who we want to go out to dinner with, you know, after work or who we want to socialize more with in the break room based on these superficial ideas of who is similar to me. I feel safe with them. I'm more likely to trust them. I'm more likely to spend more time and therefore network with them. Um, and a huge stream of my research right now is trying to overcome uh, those ideas of the implicit biases that we have of leaders and then what we perceive as the prototypes of what a leader is. And the prototype of what a leader is really builds on the notion of a prototype of what a good employee is. And research has demonstrated that that is typically a white male that's able-bodied, et cetera, et cetera. We can go into additional Tall. demographics. Tall, blue eyes. We could just go on and on. We all have this image in our mind right now as we're talking about this of uh, what society or organizations or even ourselves are programmed to think a leader looks like. And a huge stream of my research tackles, you know, how do we change the face of leadership when it's so ingrained in these cognitive processes of implicit bias and prototypes? Uh, and so what we're uh, specifically dealing with is Ron, as you suggested, this historically has been going on for <laughs> quite a while. I mean, these cognitive processes are strong and they do just keep replicating and replicating. And despite so many efforts from employees themselves, organizations, even um, some structures within society, we're still seeing that, you know, of the Fortune 500, only 33 or around six and a half percent of CEOs of the Fortune 500 are women. 
And then when we look at racial minorities, the numbers get lower, less than 1%, only four um, of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 uh, happen to be black, for example. Uh, and then we have to get into a discussion of, you know, having racial experiences that are also gendered. Uh, so how many, for example, black women do we have in key leadership positions in United States organizations? I hope you're seeing the pattern that it just goes down and down and lower and lower. Um, and so my research is really focused on this idea of representation at the leader level. Uh, so because organizational leaders have been and continue to be overwhelmingly homogeneous in regards to their demographic characteristics, one set of studies looks at the identity management tactics that leaders uh, can use to overcome their devaluation related to either their gender and or race and or you know additional demographic characteristics um, and really tackle some of the sources of that devaluation uh, that are associated with those prototypes and the implicit bias so that they know they have agency in this world where, yes, they should not be in this position anyway, none of us should, that we're having to overcome these biases and these cognitive structures and these societal, um, you know, just barriers that are overwhelming on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but uh, I do focus on that idea that given this is the society we're in right now, and no, that's not fair, what can we do to make sure we're tackling these huge issues like underrepresentation at the leadership levels? So our organizations and us ourselves and really society overall does not continue to suffer the fact that we do not have uh, diverse ideas, diverse perspectives, uh, making our key decisions in a key area of our society, which is what happens in organizations. So let's examine a little bit based on your research um, and your experience, uh, past, present, and future a little bit. So I want to go back into the past. Do you feel, because I know I mean, we could talk all uh, <laughs> podcast about the year 2020 Ooh, yeah. and all of the interesting things that uh, may be potentially accelerating uh, this area for business leaders. Uh, but let's go before 2020 hit. Have you uh, have you been impressed? I mean, you and I both have uh, some HR in our background, mm -hmm. and we know that prior to 2020, a lot of companies were hiring for diversity, equity, and inclusion directors or even teams. But prior to 2020, were, have you been impressed with the um, advancements that we've made in this area? I think as a good organizational research, the answer to any question is always, it depends. <laughs> so <laughs> that's usually the safe way to yeah. respond to any question, particularly when it comes to diversity, because um, they tend to be, you know, uh, conversations that can be politicized or controversial or uh, that, you know, people have to digest a little bit before. And let me say, I'm definitely not talking about CU Boulder in particular. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm talking about across the spectrum. 
spectrum, you know, United States, Colorado, what have you. So absolutely. No, of course. Um, and I've only been at CU Boulder for four years, so I don't really have that past perspective that um, I could talk educatedly about that anyway. Uh, so yes and no, uh, we have absolutely. And I teach these in my, this in my diversity classes and uh, tackle this through my research. We have some exemplar companies that, have been tackling diversity and doing it quite successfully. Sometimes that has been in response to being a case study for the biggest racial discrimination lawsuit and hiring that has happened historically or some other bad press around uh, diversity issues. And then other companies that are exemplars, we really see the organization has grown that way. And to build on Ron's point earlier about this homosocial reproduction, when organizations start their company in a way that is very culturally competent, those values can be molded and reflected and modeled throughout the building and the foundation of the organization to where we see some examples today after 10, 20, 30 plus years of these exemplar organizations being in existence that, you know, these people, sorry, these organizations and the leaders that have been promoted and valued within that environment that values diversity are really giving us some great lessons as to what we can all do in our work environments uh, and what organizations can do around policies and procedures um, and their general diversity ideologies to really get those positive outcomes from diversity that everyone talks to, but tend to be a little bit more elusive for, um, you know, uh, some other organizations that, uh, you know, really haven't figured out the magic recipe for putting all of this together in terms of managing their diverse workforces. So have I been impressed? Absolutely. Are there examples in the news every single day of managers, leaders, supervisors, organizations getting it wrong? Absolutely. And so I think uh, there's definitely a continuum uh, and there continues to be. And so it's interesting that you mentioned 2020, you know, the, the media is putting terms out there like, you know, we've had a national racial awakening and, and really strong loaded kind of terms like that. When I think it's interesting that many of the conversations that Tara, as you've highlighted, are, you know, podcast worthy uh, throughout 2020 and 2021. It's interesting in the diversity world, we've been having a lot of these conversations for decades, if not longer. Right, right. The fact that women need help with childcare or they're brunting like what that does to um, certain career outcomes or mental health outcomes or just exhaustion outcomes. Uh, You know, we've been having a lot of these conversations that are a part of this national awakening. Uh, And so I think it's interesting to contrast 2020 and 21 to the past, um, because I see a lot of the same conversations. It's just that maybe 
more groups in society are now uh, willing to participate in the conversations, or maybe they have had more cognitive attention to focus on these conversations since they haven't been commuting to work or since our lives have been structured so differently um, around the workplace and also outside the workplace uh, due to the pandemic. Diversity is not like an end goal, right? It's a continued conversation. And 2020 has shown us very explicitly that the world is always changing. You know, uh, situations, environments, uh, demographics uh, are always changing. And so we always have to kind of up our game and continue to uh, reconceptualize and operationalize and manage uh, diversity as this word or term continues to develop and um, and really the context changes around us that impacts the lived experiences of you know what we might term a diverse employee or an employee with you know, marginalized characteristics. Uh, and so because society and the environment and context changes that, that lived experience of people, we have to continually, even if we're an exemplar company, uh, really stay on top of how we're managing diversity in the workplace. I really want to go back to the women in leadership topic, but before yes. we go there, let's uh, let's say this is the pushback. Uh, both Tara and I, mm -hmm. you know, we have a foot in the, I guess, in the, the world uh, outside academia. We, uh -huh. we have a foot in, in the business world. And one of the pushbacks that we, we hear is, yeah. okay, I'm the CEO of a company. We're profitable. We're doing well. I'm hiring you or I'm thinking about hiring you, Sabrina, as, as a consultant to yep. come in. I don't have a lot of diversity in my company, but we're doing, we're doing pretty good. And so outside of the idea that that's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. how's this going to impact my bottom line? Why should I go through the effort of trying to um, be more diverse? What yeah. are the, is what this are the benefits really that important? Yeah. yeah. Is, this, is it just to make everybody feel good or is there something, you know, we live in a world where, uh, you know, the dollar, the dollar rules, right? It's a capital society and, and everything revolves around money. I'm being a little, you know, sadistic here. It's not, not at all quite that way, but, but in a lot of, a lot of companies look at it that way. And so I would ask you, Sabrina, convince me that I should be a more diverse company. I am very used to this question for a number of reasons based on the consulting I've done with fortune 500 companies. Uh, and also really that conversation I have every day, a lot of times comes from my business students. They're like, you know, my university made me take, you know, these diversity credits and I've already sat through a diversity class. How is this diversity class different? And on day one, uh, that's actually how I start the class. I'm like, there are different reasons to care about diversity, learn about diversity, um, really, you know, pick up on these conversations because the truth is a lot of times as a white Caucasian person in America, we have the luxury and the privilege of avoiding a lot of these conversations if we want to in a way that, you know, might not necessarily help us advance uh, and get to those great outcomes that diversity can bring in organizations. Uh, and that's certainly a missing connection in this conversation when, um, you know, it's easier to turn away from those conversations 
and turn into our privilege rather than uh, do that hard work to have conversations that could be very eye-opening, could be uh, very confronting to the way you've experienced life um, over the last, you know, however many years. And, and so basically what I say when I open up my classes is there are a lot of reasons to that scholars that, you know, business people and academic people have looked at to understand why diversity is important. And yes, it matters and it's the right thing to do. So there's a moral case, right? Uh, there's an ethical case that uh, is similar to the moral case. There's a legal case. I don't want to get sued. Okay, so now we're kind of starting to get into why organizations might care. Um, lawsuits are expensive. And, um, and even when talking about kind of the moral and ethical case for diversity, we start to see that, ooh, when you make moral or ethical slip-ups, that's a public relations nightmare. That's going to cost me customers. That's going to cost me, you know, hiring more media relations people. You know, I have enough of an understanding, no matter what size company I am, that a public relations disaster is not what I need. And so even through these perspectives, we're starting to understand it's like, ooh, this could be bad for my business if I don't get on top of managing diversity correctly. But what is so great is that we have even more clear evidence, especially for business undergrads or those CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or any organization really, that does make the business case for diversity. And the example that I like to give that I think is, I don't know, it just jumps out at me as not having to need to read a lot of literature or be involved in the news cycle or to really get it. But the best example that I put out there for students on day one before we get into any of the material is that we know across a huge handful of studies that diversity uh, in your workforce, and that can look in a number of ways, basically I'll define it right now as different perspectives or different experiences that multiple people are bringing to solving a task, to uh, working on a marketing campaign, to, you know, whatever your organization does, inventing the next iPhone, you know, whatever your organization does, more perspectives on how to solve that problem, whatever problem or you're trying to bring to customers or uh, to the market, uh, basically, the more solutions you have in that brainstorming session and uh, even in the development of life cycle of different products or marketing campaigns or whatever you're doing, there is no way that additional perspectives that are bringing additional solutions, unless they're just incredibly toxic, uh, which that person shouldn't be working there anyway, uh, there's no way that can't help you make things better, find a better solution uh, that is going to speak to your customers' experiences. Um, and so innovation and creativity as a business case outcome for diversity in your workplace is a great example that I use all the time um, in terms of establishing the business case. Uh, and if you really want to talk 
pure business case. We also have the studies that show, and a lot of this, I've been lucky enough to be a part of this work as well. And so I'm very familiar with the idea that we show that diversity relates to financial outcomes, profits, stockholder prices. Uh, we have that evidence. Uh, there's a strong group of scholars that for the last 15 years has been devoted to establishing the business case and has done that quite successfully at our top universities um, using data from Fortune 500 organizations. It's We're finally at a place, I think, where this is not a question anymore. And a lot of times what we see in the research questions we look at in the research is, okay, we're finally at a place that we know the business case exists. More diversity can lead to better business outcomes, innovation, creativity, financial performance, et cetera, et cetera. But what piece are we really figuring out now? How that comes to be? How do we get from diversity to those better business outcomes? And my work focuses on managing that diversity. How do leaders get in there and do this in the right way so that you do get those better outcomes and the business case is established rather than seeing some of those negative outcomes that if diversity is not managed correctly, what are you going to see? The conflict that comes and, you know, those negative outcomes that absolutely can be a result of diversity if it's not managed correctly. Sabrina, I'm going to ask, uh, you were talking about PR earlier and yeah. your, your work is, like you said, trying to show the ROI for mm -hmm. the business case. How do we get from point A to point B and yeah. showing uh, the ROI for that? Do you think we could go to saying that some of the ROI, or what's your opinion on this, that some of the ROI could be PR and branding to customers and I think because of your work with students uh, at CU Boulder, what about hiring? So when it comes to keeping or acquiring customers and or keeping and acquiring new hires, do you mm -hmm. think these two subsets of customers and uh, new hires will vote against going to a company because they're not actively involved in um their diversity efforts or what do you think going into the future? I think that's an excellent question. And we are seeing that more and more as the makeup generationally and also uh, just otherwise in regards to other demographic characteristics is changing. Um, a lot of times that's referred to in news articles as, you know, the baby boomers are, you know, retiring. What does the workforce look like now? Uh, we've seen a lot of articles recently because the new Bureau of Labor Statistics, you know, the census data, um, the new census data for this decade is now coming out. Um, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports on uh, some of those changes uh, that uh, we're seeing over decades, uh, which is very enlightening. As society continues to change, our workplaces are going to continue to change. And we've really it, talk about a business case for diversity. It just makes sense. Like you can't avoid it. It, it. I guess that's not the business case. I guess it's just a common sense case, right? It's like, right, right. let's learn how to manage this because we. It, it's not something you can 
really avoid or doesn't make sense to um you're really losing out on great talent like you said in the hiring process um for two reasons you're not bringing in the best of the best even though a lot of companies have that motto it's like oh we're just looking for the best of the best well my implicit biases are alerting me that the best looks a lot like me that's a bias. You're doing it wrong, right? That's right. not necessarily the case. Uh, and we see that from, you mentioned Stephanie Johnson and other folks research that looks at some really creative solutions like blinding resumes. Uh, and so it's amazing uh, how racial minorities, you know, women, um, people who would not traditionally maybe have gotten the job just jump up in the rankings in terms of, uh, you know, how resumes are evaluated and who they want to offer the job to when blinding occurs. Explain to the listeners what that means, blinding a resume. A lot of times we can get a lot of cues about who a person is or who we at least think they are uh, in our heads based on just a one-page piece of paper, a resume, uh, from a name, like, oh, Jose Martinez, what ethnicity, race, you know, (laughs) uh, gender, for that matter, do I think this applicant is? Probably a male who's white and Hispanic. I mean, that's the assumptions that we can make from just the first line of a resume, right? Uh, and so there's some famous studies, uh, you know, are Jamal and Lakeisha like uh, equally, you know, hireable as, you know, John and Emily or uh, I don't know if I'm remembering all four of those names exactly correctly, but you get the point. Uh, names can change a recruiting manager or hiring managers uh, perception and have those implicit bias bells start going off whether they know it or not really quickly just from the name of a resume Uh, let alone think about what else is on resumes um, groups that you're involved in uh, leadership positions you've had there are a lot of places on a resume where you can drop hints at um, even the hobbies, you know, if, if I went to see you Boulder and I ski, are you more likely to think this applicant is white uh, coming, you know, from a university that's predominantly white or, you know, if they're coming from the University of Memphis and they do a different hobby, you, you know, we make these assumptions, we put these pieces of information together a lot of times in a way that, builds on our previous experience, but also builds into these cognitive structures we talked about before that include implicit bias and prototypes. And so when organizations blind the resume, they're taking off things that could um, produce an assumption of gender, race, ethnicity, uh, even sexual orientation when it comes to maybe different groups you've been involved in, things like that. Blinding Um, And usually organizations really focus on the name and and things like that. Um, And so that's what I mean by blinding. Uh, But that's a whole fascinating podcast in and of itself. Uh, You know, like my research on identity management during the hiring and staffing process, recruitment process, when a lot of times, especially nowadays, hiring people involves a Zoom interview or, you know, in the olden days, a whole 13 months ago, you know, face-to-face interviews or a phone call. 
you can't tell me that people don't pay attention to accents, um, whether that's, oh, this person is not American or this person um, doesn't have a good grasp of the English language. Um, it, we make all these assumptions just from voices. I'm wondering, Sabrina, do you yeah. think so? We're we we kind of all agree that, especially in uh, in light of the last year or so, we are seeing a little bit of a ramp up, and we're seeing mm-hmm. companies put a little bit more money and a little bit more effort and a little bit more awareness. I we mm-hmm. hope, fingers crossed, right, uh, with what's going on and bringing more diversity into the workforce, and we're even bringing it more into the universities. Uh, uh, CU Boulder is working really hard to make this a huge initiative right now. Do you think we can go too far with this effort? Is mm-hmm. there a, a a line where it's like, oh, we went a little too far and here are the repercussions? Or do you think this is so necessary that there is no end to that railroad track? Mm-hmm. We can, we should just go full steam ahead uh, for a while. What are What are your thoughts there? We know that organizations put thousands, honestly, millions of dollars into diversity management. Uh, You can look at individual companies, you know, some that have a lot of resources, Google, for example, and they report, you know, exactly uh, how much they put into diversity management. And this includes things like diversity training programs, um, uh, you know, recruiting from diverse institutions and uh, developing relationships so that uh, the pipeline of applicants that you have um, is more diverse than what traditionally might come to you just naturally. But essentially, when it comes to diversity management, companies have been reporting their numbers. And we know that organizations, and of course, this might vary based on the size of the organization, the location, uh, its values, a, a number of things. But over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a number of organizations, you know, pour thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into diversity management efforts. Based on some of the statistics that I just briefly mentioned earlier about representation and leadership, some things like that, and I could give a thousand other examples, uh, because a lot of the barriers are coming from the systemic kind of infrastructure that we have as a society, which as organizations have, as they've been built, um, you know, when our leaders and founders are, do all look the same. If, you know, a huge number of organizations were founded a hundred years ago and all the leaders looked the same, white males, for example. Um, And we know that implicit biases and prototypes and really that idea behind homosocial reproduction just continues and continues. Uh, We know that the infrastructure of organizations is doing this replication process around some of these prototypes and institutional biases in addition to other just racist sexist, um, just other issues that uh, we deal with in society on a daily basis. Uh, And so it's going to take a lot to even make a dent in changing the fabric and the foundation of how we think of society, how we operate cognitively, um, how our organizations are set up, all of the policies and procedures that you know, mold around this infrastructure that was built this way. And in terms of progress, 
we certainly have seen some um, in terms of talking about these things, maybe a little bit more openly, uh, especially in the last year. Absolutely. I don't think it's possible to go too far um, because if we're pouring mil thousands, millions of dollars into these efforts and we still haven't gotten it quite right around how to manage diversity uh, su successfully, efficiently, effectively, um, and this progress that we've seen around a quote unquote, you know, as the media is terming it, this national like racial awakening and these huge movements, whether it's Black Lives Movement, the Me Too movement, and our progress equals four Black CEOs and 33 like women CEOs. I'm just going to do the simple answer and say, no, I do not think we can go too far. Um, there's a lot of progress to be made. And I don't think even Bill Gates money or Jeff Bezos money, if you put all that money and just brain power around diversity that we do have in the world together, that we could really, you know, do a lot of quote unquote damage in terms of making progress for equality and to reduce discrimination. And um, it, it's just not possible in my personal perspective. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to jump on this question and I'm going to be maybe a little controversial. Sure. And, and the, the, I think what Tara's getting at here is let's say I have applicant a, maybe she's a black woman and I have applicant sure. B white man. Yeah. And applicant B, the white man is actually more qualified, or at least I believe is more qualified. Okay. And they're, they're, we could unpack that as well. Sure. Just based should on experience I, or, you know, yeah. the black woman, even though mm -hmm. in my judgment, she's not as well qualified. And so now we start getting into this idea of I'm trying mm -hmm. really hard to be diverse, but maybe I'm not hiring the best person. Mm, what would you say it. to that? I say that when we are hiring, uh, we tend to have a very narrow view of ex terms like experience or uh, education, uh, all these buzzwords that we think intuitively we have a really good sense of. Uh, a lot of these things we've talked about for the last uh, you know, 40 minutes or so, uh, these biases and these prototypes are impacting how we view, you know, they're a lens on how we view hiring terms, whether that's experience, education, um, it, you know, as we talked about, even names on a resume, uh, all these different lenses are, can be, you know, a, can be lens upon lens upon lens that is just, distorting the picture of what this candidate actually can bring to the organization. Uh, and so a lot of times um, our diversity ideologies or uh, maybe the implicit biases that we do have or that the, our predecessor had who made the interview questions that we've inherited and are now using, you know, that's another way we replicate some of these processes. Uh, we don't update a lot of our procedures or maybe even policies around, you know, the conversations and how the things we know have progressed and developed. Um, and so that can really be damaging in that we're never really making progress. And so if we stay with these policies and procedures, for example, let's say 
um, not blinding resumes or let's say a standard set of interview questions that we think, you know, for the last 10 years have served us really well. They're really accessing the experience that candidates can bring to our firm. If we haven't really kind of opened up our mind and reworked and reconceptualized when there, as we've demonstrated, leadership, manager, you know, these top rungs that are decision makers in organizations, when they tend to look the same way, it's very possible and probable that the procedures and policies that are really being implemented around hiring are colored through a lens that has a lot of bias in it. And so when we are trained or just normed to think of experience or education in a certain way, we miss a lot of what does this organization really need in terms of the skill set? Uh, the perspectives, the background that would make my brainstorming sessions on the, you know, what features the new iPhone should have, or, you know, what would make this next marketing campaign effective? Yeah, Yeah, I I love what you're saying. I love that Ron asked the question because it comes up a lot and it makes me think um, another way to say what you're saying is to hire the person for the holistic need of the organization rather than, I mean, I come from Silicon Valley and working with a lot of tech startups where it was like, we only hire A players, we only hire A players. And I'm like, but how many of the last A players have you hired that are terrible culture fits, that are terrible leaders? Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it, yeah, right. It's not about the A players necessarily or the resume. It's about the holistic exactly. uh, fit into the org. So. Oh, you have a great GPA from a top 10 business school. Fantastic. You probably so overrated. You think the same exact way because you have been trained to think of the other 20 top 10 business school graduates that you have at this organization. And not only that, you know, in society, we do have this like halo effect, you know, another type of bias around, you know, what does good education look like? Like, oh, a top 10 business school or top 50 business school. Companies are going to have to redefine what this looks like because over the last year, who's lost jobs overwhelmingly more than anyone? It's women. And, you know, they've dropped out for a number of reasons, a lot to do with, you know, remote learning, childcare, um, just a number of things. That's a whole nother podcast in and of itself. Uh, But, you know, if you have this notion as an organization of, you know, if people have gaps in their employment history, you know, that's not a conversation we want to have. This person is unreliable. This person cannot hold a job you literally are not going to have enough people to fill the seats in your organization. And not only is that a problem in terms of, it's just not realistic in terms of the context that we're in, you know, the reasons people dropped out of the workforce are not because they're not reliable. It's because they're literally serving as the glue of society, performing the different roles and tasks and caregiving, et cetera, that they're doing. Um, and if you're an organization who can, you know, live in that context and apply it and update your policies and procedures to be reflective of that, what are you going to miss out on? 
for all the listeners out there, um, we're running out of time, but uh, you oh, know, I think, I think you can, you can get the sense. This is not an easy thing to solve. I mean, Absolutely a lot of not. this, this, this discussion about implicit anything, uh, if you're not familiar with what that term means, <laughs> it means we're doing this basically automatically. We're doing this be, below a conscious level. So I don't think it, it's not as simple. And I've, I've studied a little bit about this. It's not as simple as just changing your mindset. So I think, you know, that's another, that's a whole nother podcast to say, okay, how do we do this better? I don't think it's a simple thing. Um, it's not a simple thing. And I would say hire Sabrina as your, your consultant and she'll help you with some solutions, but I think it's a, it's a discussion we need to have, right? I think all three of us agree. It's time for that discussion. It's also time for our last signature question. Mm -hmm. Sabrina, what do you think is the frontier of leadership? And, and, and really what I mean by that is what, either what do you see coming in the future or what would you like to see coming in the future um, yeah. uh, for, for leadership? My gut instinct when you ask that is to say color. And you can take that in many different ways. Um, all the beautiful shades of black, brown, tan, beige, etc. Um, all the colors of the rainbow, right? You, you can think of that in a number of ways, but um, I will just do that one word answer. The frontier of leadership, what do I see? I'll say color. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us this week. If you enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from these conversations. We'll see you next time.